0: Pastor, such an honor to be here tonight, church. I follow you guys on uh, social media, and uh, I'm just so encouraged by uh, guys who are a bit younger than me who are planting churches in hard cities, in cities that need the gospel and uh, are being faithful to the gospel. And I just... um, I've already been encouraged just being here uh, this morning, being with uh, Pastor Mike and uh, being here tonight. And so I just want to encourage your soul tonight in the gospel from Romans chapter 8. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to uh, turn it on or open it up to uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 31 to 39. If you're here tonight, not a Christian, this is a great Time for you to be here as, as we're going to hit some of the, the high points of, of the gospel. Uh, and I pray that uh, all of us tonight uh, have a deeper sense of the love of Christ, uh, that we leave here in adoration for all that Christ is, for all that Christ has done, and for all that Christ will do uh, in the future. Amen. So I'm going to read this text and pray, and we'll jump in. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God (laughs) in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake, we pray, amen. A few years ago, our church, which is now 10 years old, we went through the book of Romans and uh, we didn't take the Hotel California approach, as I call it, where you check in but never leave, you know, spending uh, 15, 16 years in a book. We, we managed to get through uh, Romans in about nine months. But as we concluded our study through the book of Romans, I, I told our church, uh, just, just realize that when we study a book of the Bible and we're finished, it doesn't mean we're finished studying that book. Uh, we're we're going to study Romans for the rest of our lives. Um, I mean, this book is not finished with me. I remember as a, a young college student, I went to a small college in Kentucky on a baseball scholarship, uh, originally uh, from Detroit, Michigan, grew up in, in Detroit, or grew up in Kentucky, and uh, I went to college just to play ball. I had a 1.7 GPA, at, you know, my freshman year of college. I was uh, partying and, and living it up, uh, doing all the stuff that, uh, you know, people often talk about when they go to college, but, but the Lord in his great kindness uh, put a, a teammate, uh, on my team who was a Christian. I was a shortstop, Uh, he was second baseman, and he would witness to everybody that would come to second base, like the opposing team. And uh, sometimes I, I think they went for third, you know, just so they didn't have to hear the sermon at second base, right? And um, Stephen would just uh, relentlessly uh, pursue me. He, I would go to parties, and he had like this police jacket, and he would come and put his police jacket on, like take me out of the parties and, and all of these things. And he kept telling me all this, these things that the Lord could do with my life. And uh, as a sophomore in college, uh, he invited me into to these FCA services on college campus uh, where I was at. And I began to hear the gospel, begin to ask questions. Uh, and I uh, gave my heart to Christ as, as a sophomore in college. And I remember the next day we were running wind sprints in practice and Stephen was like, hey Tony, we're gonna start a Bible study. And uh, I was like, great, uh, I better go get one of those. And uh, he, he, I, he was like, we're gonna study the prodigal son. And I was so ignorant to the Bible, I'd never heard of that story. Um, and I would just sit with Stephen and marvel at, you know, before, before I was a Christian, he would, he would study the text. He had a big Bible, had, you know, a study Bible. I, I later learned it was called, had all the answers in the bottom of it. And he taking notes, and I'd never seen anybody in my lane doing the stuff that I was doing who was actually serious about Jesus, who actually enjoyed hearing sermons. And he began to disciple me. I began to ask questions. We had seven or eight guys on our team. We would meet together weekly, started studying the Bible. We went to various churches, uh, and then we studied the book of Romans, and I remember that it it just set me on fire. I remember just my heart burning as I was reading uh, Paul's words to this church, and I'm not the first, of course. When people understand the message of Romans, big things happen. Big things happen historically. Martin Luther, who was one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, was trying to earn righteousness earn salvation through religious works. And he said he read Romans and it actually made him hate God because he read of God's righteousness and he knew that he was anything but righteous. Wow. And then he read Romans 1 properly, that the, the just shall live by faith, that we do not earn righteousness, we receive it by faith. And Luther said it was like the gateway to paradise opened up to him. And this monk started dancing in the streets as he, as he understood the gospel. And that was the same for John Wesley, who said that, that he, was, he, he heard Martin Luther's commentary being read aloud, just the introduction of the commentary, and his heart, he says, was strangely warmed as he understood the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And years before both of these guys, another church history legend is the North African church father, uh, Augustine of Hippo. Augustine was 32 years old. He had multiple mistresses. His mother was a Christian who prayed for Augustine to be converted. And uh, Augustine would go hear this guy preach named Ambrose, not because he liked the gospel, but because he loved his rhetoric. And he would go and hear Ambrose and he began to fall under conviction of the message of Ambrose. And Augustine tells this remarkable story of just hearing some kids sing a song outside, saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he goes outside and he finds a Bible. And he tells God, I'm going to believe the first thing that I open to when I open this Bible, which is not necessarily the, what I recommend. You know, Unfortunately, like, like, he didn't turn to Judas hung himself or something like that. But he, he, he opens up to Romans 13 about casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. And Augustine became a new man. And he tells this crazy story about one of his girlfriends chasing him down the street. And she's calling him out by name, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And he won't give her any attention. And she's like, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And he's just running away from her. And eventually he turns and he says, but it is not I. It is not I. And that's what the gospel does to us. It gives us a new identity. It makes us a new creation. Romans 1.16, which I think is the thesis of the book of Romans, is true. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel still works. The gospel still converts people in cities like Vegas, in cities like Raleigh, North Carolina. And tonight I picked this text because in Romans 8.31-39, Paul summarizes some key themes in the book of Romans. He's about to start a new section. In the letter. And so, this is a good place to just, just uh, look at for just a few moments in order for us to consider afresh God's grace to us, consider afresh the, the depth of the love of Christ. And the, 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 the text that we read is really organized around four questions. Uh, you, may, you may call these four who questions. I'm sure you picked up on it as I, I read them in verses 31 to 32. The question is who can be against us? Verse 33 is, who shall bring any charge against us? Verse 34, who will condemn us? Verse 35 to 39, who can separate us? And the answer that Paul anticipates after each question is, nobody. Nobody. Who can be against us? Nobody. Who shall bring any successful charge against us? Nobody. Who will condemn us ultimately? Nobody. Who can separate us? Nobody. I call this Paul's who dat section of Romans. You know, I I lived in New Orleans for eight years. I went to school there and pastored in the city for a while. And that's the, you know, the New Orleans Saints cheer who dat, who dat say gonna beat them saints. It's usually pretty much everybody. But but whenever they win, whenever they win, they, you hear that crazy cheer who dat. And this is what Paul's saying who dat say gonna beat them saints? Who's gonna overcome God's people? Ultimately, Nobody, not because of how awesome we are, but because of how awesome our God is, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done right in Jesus Christ. So let's look at those four who questions for a bit. Number one, who can be against us? Now you notice in the text, before Paul gets to this question, there's a prior question when he says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, if you're new to Romans, you're new to the Bible, you may ask, well, what does he mean by these things? That's a great question. It could be that Paul's just referring to everything that he said in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 30. He said a lot in those verses. If you haven't read it in a while, uh, go have a look at it. But most commentators and I agree with this think that Paul because he's about to begin a new section in Romans 9, he's actually asking the question, "What do we say about Romans chapters 1 to 8?" How do you summarize Romans 1 to 8? You say, "Well, what's Romans 1 to 8 about?" Well, It's about this. In chapter 1, Paul says that all the Gentiles are sinful, they're idolatrous, and they're under condemnation. In chapter 2, he says all the Jews who haven't repented, trusted in Christ, are also guilty. In chapter 3, he says all y'all are guilty, right? (laughs) There's none who are righteous. No, not one. But then there's this wonderful pivot in Romans 3.21. God intervenes, right? Right? That he he puts Christ forward in our place for our sin, to take our punishment on himself. And by grace, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he says, Abraham is an example of this. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In chapter 5, he teases out the benefits of justification. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. In chapter 6, he begins to talk about how the Spirit of God is now in our hearts, right? Chapter 7, how this this Spirit now is in us, making us long for holiness and righteousness. Chapter 8 begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. (laughs) He then begins to talk about how the Spirit is, is at work in us, and we have the Spirit of adoption, that the Holy Spirit is testifying that we're God's kids. And then he says that all of the suffering that we endure in this life is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And that all things are working together for our good. Right? And now Paul's asking the question, what do you say to those things? How do you summarize all of that? And you say, well, that would be a really hard thing to summarize. And I think Paul summarizes it for us in his question. How do we summarize Romans 1 to 8? What's a good summary of the gospel? God is for us. That's it. Our God tonight is for us. You can't let pain and hardship deceive you. You can't let your circumstances deceive you. Be encouraged tonight, weary saint, that almighty God is not opposed to us. We're in Jesus Christ as Christians, and therefore he is for us he is for us. And I can hardly think of anything better tonight than to realize that he's not opposed to me, but that he's for me. As the psalmist said in Psalm 56, I think Paul may be alluding to that. This I know, the psalmist says, that God is for me. You know, for years I've been uh, uh, speaking at youth camps. I'm really just a youth speaker in disguise still. Um, And, uh, you know, when kids come up at the end of of the week at camp, they're always saying, like, hey, pastor, will you sign my shirt? Will you sign my notebook or whatever? And give me your favorite verse. And so when I'm feeling really, really holy, you know, I'll always put Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? But usually I like to just mess with these kids. And I'll put something like Exodus 23, 19. You know, like, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And I just put that verse down. And just, just go ahead, little Johnny. Go have a look at that, man. Uh, but if I'm summarizing it, you know, like, what is the greatest thing I could tell somebody about the gospel? What is, what is the gospel saying to us? It is tonight that our God is for us. Now, the question is, how do we know that? I mean, it sounds really good. And there are people, right, in other faiths that would say that and that would do great harm uh, to, to people in the name of their God is for them. How do we actually know that God is for us? Well, notice how verse 32 is tied to verse 31. And that's very important because what Paul says is something has happened in space, time, and history to prove once and for all that God is for us. And what is that? It's the cross. Lest we ever doubt That God is for us. We only look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice how he says. He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. This is how we know our God is for us. And the cross of Christ. This event that happened in the past. Is the basis for our ongoing hope in the present and in the future. Christ's work for us ensures us of God's continued grace toward us. He who did not spare his own son, you can hear, if you're familiar with the uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac, Isaac was, uh, Abraham was called to put Isaac on, uh, uh, on the altar as a sacrifice, but he was spared, his son was spared. God put a substitute there, right? But the father did not spare his own son, his own beloved son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not, then Paul says, give us all things? You see what Paul's doing here is he's working from the greater to the lesser argument. If God's going to do the great thing, put forward his son, his own beloved son in our place, how will he not graciously give us all things? Right? In other words, if God's going to put Christ forward for you, you're going to be I. Right. You're going to be I. Right. Because the big thing has already happened. And the big thing assures us of the little things, right? Now, I don't think all things means everything we've ever wanted, but all things is, is tied to the same phrase he uses in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. And, uh, early and uh, later, that, that in all these things we were more than conquerors. It's, it's taken in a, in, the, in a salvific sense, in a spiritual sense, How will he not graciously give us all things necessary to get us to glory? In other words, he did not redeem us to leave us. He redeemed us to be with us and conform us to the image of his son and take us to glory. And the past work at the cross assures us of that work right now in the present and in the work to come in the future. And so we rest in this logic that Paul's given. This is gospel logic the greater to the lesser. This is how we get through our, 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 our life problems, knowing that our greatest problem has already been solved. It's already been solved. You know, it's kind of like if, if I take my kids to Disney World, I have five kids, and they're all older now, 17 to 21. But when they were little, we all went to Disney World, and, and I really do not like the Disney World, but I love my kids, right? So we, we go to Disney World, we stand out in that heat in, in the summer and uh, it costs a fortune. And let's just say, you know, I buy plane tickets and we fly to Orlando, we get a hotel and uh, we, we spend all this money and now it's time to park. And I see a sign that says parking, $50. Now what if I look to Kimberly and I say, I'm not doing it. I'm drawing a line right here. I'm not spending $50 to park. <laughs> right? We're going we're gonna to stay at the hotel and we're going to walk. Just four miles, not a big deal. We're just going uh, to walk to Disney World. She's going to say, uh, actually, she's probably not even going to talk. She's going to punch me in the neck or somewhere, <laughs> right? She's going to say, we've spent $4,000 to get here. We're going to pay 50 bucks to park. We've already made the big purchase and the big purchase has already been made for us. How will he not pay our parking? How will he not get us through the stress of this work week? How will he not get us through all of the challenges that come in in this life, right? And you got to go back to the gospel, right, and apply it to your soul, right? The gospel is not just that which tips you into the kingdom. It's that which we also live on. We live on this, don't we? You wonder, like I was reading in the prophets today. I was telling Mike, I just love the minor prophets. They're so weird, and, and uh, they say these things, these poetic statements like, the Lord will restore the years that the locust has eaten. Oh, what a statement. Like, you feel like so much of your life, you wasted it. And, but the Lord can restore all the years that the, the locusts have eaten. Like, the, the Bible is, is such a real book. It recognizes the real struggle that you have and Paul recognizes that suffering really exists in this life. This book of in chapter 8 of Romans is about suffering, but it's how the gospel meets us in our suffering. And when we take truth to struggle, that's when the beauty happens. That's when hope arises when we take truth and we apply it to our own souls. So Paul says who can be against us ultimately? Nobody. I spent a bit of time on that. I don't want to spend as much time on the, the three, next three questions. But the qu- second question. <clears throat> who shall bring any charge against us? Hi, can you throw me a water? appreciate it. <clears throat> who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, obviously, Paul here has, uh, again, the answer he, he anticipates in each of the questions is no one, nobody. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, who, who can bring a charge against God's people? Now, obviously, people will oppose God's people. People will bring charges. But what he's saying is, if God has already justified us, that he's, he's declared us righteous because of the work of Jesus, you cannot go higher than God. There's no authority higher than him. And so if it is God who has justified us, we're justified justified. And this is what Paul's doing in this, this chapter. He, he's helping us sing the song we sang earlier, He Will Hold Me Fast. He's giving assurance. He's giving assurance to us that if God has justified us, we're good. But the reality is we live in a world in which people will do almost anything to try to earn justification before God. That is to be de- declared right before God. A few years ago, Kimberly and I were in, in Rome. And there is this church called the Church of the Holy Steps. And you go to the Church of the Holy Steps, and there are many relics that are there. And these stairs were supposedly brought from Jerusalem and put in this church. And these were supposedly the steps that Jesus walked on during his passion. And outside, you can read kind of the, the description of this church and these steps And you read something along the lines of, when you pray on certain days of the year, you can get total atonement if you will just pray up these stairs. And it was so sad. It was so sad. I remember Kimberly was in tears as people really believed that what they needed for salvation was was some magical steps to, to pray up. And while many don't hold this view, many have their own version of the steps. They have their own way that they think that they can earn favor with God and receive salvation. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus already went up the steps. We don't have to go up any more steps. Like he already went up and he did everything that was necessary. And that way, that's what makes the gospel so good. The gavel has come down. The case is closed. It is God who justifies us. And so we go to bed tonight Knowing that, right? I love the old hymn that says, Well, may the accuser roar and tell me of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. He has justified us. And we go back to the gospel, and it gives us this assurance, right, that we need. You know, it's kind of like when you go uh, on a a trip uh, on an airplane. There are two kinds of tickets. You've got confirmed tickets, and you have standby tickets. And you can usually tell the difference in the people who are flying, whether they got a confirmed or a standby. Standby is really nervous, right? They're, they're looking at the screen to see if they're going to make it on the flight. They're calling people. I don't know if I'm on this flight or not. Uh, but, it, but if you've got a confirmed ticket, you, you chill. Like, there's, there's no stressing. You're just, you're just hanging, right? And what Paul is saying to the Christian is, you have a confirmed ticket. It is God who justifies. You already got a seat, man. You don't have to fret and worry about your eternal destination. And if you're not a Christian, this is what we call you in on. This kind of peace. This kind of assurance. That God will justify you. Not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf. The third question is very similar to that. Who will condemn us? Only this time, Paul gives what you might call a Christ-centered answer to it. Instead of a God-centered answer. Where he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will condemn us? Again, people will try to condemn us. Our own hearts, John tells us, will try to condemn us. Satan is the accuser who will try to condemn us. We'll have critics. We'll have enemies. He's not denying any of that. But he's saying, ultimately, they can't condemn us. Because the one who could condemn us actually was condemned in place of us. Who will condemn us? It's not Christ. He did the opposite of that. He died for us. He rose, Paul says in Romans four, "For our justification. Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised. And what is our Christ doing right now? Think about this, interceding for us. Like Jesus right now is saving us. You know we say in theology that we were saved, we are being saved we will be saved and we're being held fast right now tonight in one way in the fact that Jesus is praying for us and he always prays successfully he's interceding for us continually nonstop. as one writer said if I could hear Jesus pray for me in the other room I would not fear a million enemies but distance makes no difference he is praying for me You are the subject of Jesus' intercessory prayers. And he is bringing us to glory. Therefore, Paul says, who will condemn us? It's not Christ. He died for us. He was condemned in place of us. He rose for us. He is interceding for us. And this is where one writer says, this is the foundation of Christian joy. It's liberty. What do liberated people do? They sing. This is why Christians for thousands of years have filled the earth with singing. Because oppression does not produce praise. Works-based righteousness, oppressive religions do not fuel praise. Grace fuels praise. Liberated people sing, right? And that's why... Our songs, right, we, 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 we reflect on the gospel because you cannot help but to sing. That's the natural response to grace, is to pour out praise to our God. And it also gives you peace. In fact, I love how in, in Acts, you have a couple of cases where guys are in prison. Peter's in prison in Acts 12. Paul's in prison in Acts 16. And in Acts 12, Peter's asleep. I mean, his, his boy just got killed, and yet they have to send an angel to wake Peter up. It's like, how can you sleep in prison like this? And then in Acts 16, Paul's not sleeping. He's singing. Because the gospel will let you sleep, and it'll let you sing. It'll give you the peace you need. When you're even chained up, your heart's still free. It'll let you sing. When you're chained up, your heart's still free. And that's what, that's the power of Romans chapter 8. That's the power of believing what Paul is describing here. Christ died, he was raised, he's at the right hand of the Father. This also implies that he is reigning. He's reigning over all. Even when it doesn't look like anybody's in control of this crazy world. That Jesus Christ is at the Father's right hand. One scholar, Michael Green, mentions that early Christians dated the deaths of martyrs with the appropriate year, whatever the year was, and then added Regante Jesu Christo in the reign of Jesus Christ. I started saying that a lot at our welcome at our church. Welcome, it's whatever, November the 2nd, 2021, in the reign of Jesus Christ. He is reigning. He's at the Father's right hand. He's made perfect atonement. The work is finished. He's interceding for us. And all of this is saying to us that Jesus is more committed to us than we are to him. Jesus is so committed to us. He's got us. We're going to be all right. Number four, who will separate us? Because God is for us, we will never be separated from God's love. Now, notice in this text, I won't spend as much time but the answer is twice as long as the other answers and by now you're reading Paul and you're like hey Paul we get it man who shall separate us from the love of Christ nobody chapter nine but we have all these verses before we get to chapter nine and we we know the answer which which means that sometimes you need more than the right answer Paul's after their hearts not just the right answer and so he puts the rhetorical pedal to the homiletical metal, trying to stir up worship, you see, in the hearts of these people. All of the language, who shall separate us? And he doesn't get to his answer for a while because he wants us to feel this. He wants us to to sense the depth of this. And so he raises some possible separators. And we know all of this from experience, like we might feel separated from the love of Christ when, for example, we have tribulation. Don't don't we sometimes wonder about where is Jesus? Does he still love me? Look at the trouble I'm enduring. That's natural. The same with distress. Or if you're being persecuted for the faith. Hey, man, I'm trying to be faithful, and yet I'm being persecuted. I'm being attacked. That can be very wearisome. That can be very dejecting. Does, Does Christ still love me? Or famine, if you don't have basic necessities. Where are you? or nakedness, or danger, or being threatened with the sword. Paul says, can any of these things actually separate us? Can any of these experiences that make us feel distant actually separate? Can they in reality separate a saint? Like we can feel cold, we can feel distance, that's normal. We're not always, you know, uh, in, in the right place in our soul. But can it in reality separate us? And this is where we have to take truth to our experience, our feeling, right? And so then he quotes a psalm, which is kind of very vintage Paul. You're like, Paul, where did you, why did you quote that psalm? And it's, it's a psalm out of Psalm 44, which is basically about the suffering of God's people. When he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, which I think is Paul's way of saying, listen, suffering is par for the course. It's always been normative for God's people you're not abnormal if you suffer as a Christian. Half of this chapter has been about suffering in Romans 8. So no, can these things separate us? No, that's normal, that's life. Then he finally answers the question, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now notice just a couple of things here. He doesn't say that God takes us out of these things. That's what we want sometimes. Take me out of the tribulation. Take me out of the famine and, and, and provide. Take me out of the, and sometimes God does that. He does. He, he, he takes us out of situations. But notice Paul says here it's in all these things that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're left in these things, but not defeated individuals, but conquerors. And notice it's more than a conqueror. And you're kind of like, man, what is that? <laughs> Like you, What's more than a conqueror? Like a conqueror is it. Like there's nothing beyond a conqueror, right? How, what does he mean by more than a conqueror through him who loved us? And I think Paul means this. When you endure suffering, it's not just that you're able to endure the suffering. There's more than that. God is actually using the suffering for your good. God's actually using that suffering to conform you more to the image of his son. Because there's something God wants more than your comfort. He wants Christ-likeness in your life. And so for the Christian, we, had, we have added perspective on suffering. It's more than we can get through it. And praise God, we can get through it. But that God actually is using it. Therefore, we're more than a conqueror. Not in our strength, but notice, it's through him. We're conquerors not because we're, we're good and all that. All I do is win, win, win. You know? But we're conquerors. Through him who loved us. Notice past tense. He loved us. This is a reflection back on the cross. We're we're more than conquerors through him, Jesus, who loved us. What he did on the cross is continuing to give us hope right now in the present. Continuing to empower, empower us. All the implications of the cross. All the benefits of the cross. The work of the spirit in our lives. We're more than conquerors because that happened. Because that's real. Paul says, can anything separate us? Far from separating us, it's actually being used for us. So good. And that gives us great hope when we, we, we deal with suffering and trial in this life, isn't it? <clears throat> Finally, he says in verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life. So, things in this existence or what happens after you die. Nor angels nor rulers, things in the spiritual realm. Nor things present going on right now in our lives. And I'm sure many of you, like myself, have some very painful things going on in your life. None of these things that we're experiencing presently tonight, nor things to come. The things we don't know that we're about to endure. Just know when they come, they're not separating you from the love of Christ. And that right now, whatever you're enduring cannot separate you from the love of Christ. You may feel emotionally at times, you may wonder... You may be in despair, but they can't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a passage, man. Paul had a good day when he wrote Romans 8. He had a good day. Now let me just tease out a few implications of of these verses. Number one, let these truths lead you to worship. This text is here to warm our affections. And It's so important as a Christian that we think about our affections, our loves, because we live out of our loves. That's what it means to be a human, as one writer puts it. To be a human is to be a lover. We love things, and we live out of the overflow of the heart. And we get ourselves in trouble, and we fall into sin when we start loving other things more than Christ, right? When affections change, behavior follows. Like we have to remember this in parenting, it's, you know, like what we ultimately need is our, our kids to fall in love with Christ and everything changes. The same is true with us, you know, you know how this works. <clears throat> when my son James was a teenager, was, I'd be like, hey, James, man, will you take a shower? Just, just for the, like, the love of humanity, like uh, <laughs> will, you, will you take a shower? no. James, have you ever considered deodorant? it's a, it's a re- relatively new invention. I, I think you'd really enjoy it. And um, no, how about some cologne, man? Just a little dab. You know, just I think that would be helpful um, to, to express some love for your neighbor. No, James, how, how, would you like to get a job? Uh, maybe. Maybe no. James, would you like to wash my car? Mm-hmm. James doesn't want to do any of those things until he gets a girlfriend. And now all of a sudden, guess who's taking a shower? Guess who's using deodorant, right? Guess who's using so much cologne that you can't light a match anywhere near his uh, bedroom? (laughs) like he, He wants to take my car out. He gets a job, right, because he got a new love. And when you get real affections for Jesus Christ, deep affections, it changes how you spend money, what you look at, what you want to do with your life, because we live out of our hearts. And God has given us texts like this to help our affections. So we meditate on it. We memorize it. We marinate in it that we may live out of the overflow of the heart. Let these truths lead you to worship. Secondly, let them lift you from despair. Paul mentions three things that leads Christians to despair. Sin, suffering, and death. Think about that. What makes you discouraged as a Christian? What makes me discouraged as a Christian? It's My own sin many times. It's the sin I see in the world. It's the sin I see in people that I love. Suffering and death. And Paul gives a solution to each of those in this text. It is the gospel. Jesus has already dealt with my sin. And I go back to that again and again. It is God who justifies. What do I do with the suffering that I see and the suffering that I see in God's people, I remember that we're still in the grip of God's grace. He will hold us fast. And what do I do when I despair at death? I remember that not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? These truths lift us from despair. Thirdly, let these truths build your community as a church. I didn't press this, but notice the plural language. It's not, if God is for me, who can be against me? Which is true, as a Christian. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, not me, though that's true, us all. How we not give us graciously give us all things? You see, the gospel is building a family, a kind of community that is countercultural, that's so unique. You know, sometimes when we, we read in the text, like when Paul says brothers or brothers and sisters, that's just kind of language you use in the church sometimes when we forget people's names. But, <clears throat> but that's a big deal with the Jews and Gentiles, which is a big topic in this, this letter. For a Jewish person, a Christian, to call a Gentile Christian brother, that's amazing. It's a miracle. You know, we have five kids, they're, they're all adopted. We have four Ukrainian children one Ethiopian son. <clears throat> and 11 years ago, we took Joshua to his first ever Christmas. He'd been home about three months and he walks into Northern Virginia, sees my wife's family with all the, all the people and all the, the energy in the room. And he looks to me and he says, Papa, are all these people our family? And I was like, yeah, man, unfortunately, all of these people <laughs> are our family. Now, it was beginning to dawn on Joshua that when you get a new father, you also get a new family. And the gospel has done that in our lives. That that we call each other brother and sister because we call God Abba, Father. And it's the gospel that builds this community. And that's why we can have a diverse, beautiful community of, of different ethnicities and ages and interests. Because it's the gospel that unifies us. That's where we find our deep delight and our great joy. And finally, we want these truths to lead us into mission. We want the world to hear this, don't we? We want the world to hear this and we can endure suffering and hardship with the promises of Romans 8. These truths embolden us for mission. And so as faithful missionaries and evangelists here in the city of Vegas, we not only share the gospel, but we live on the gospel and we pray Lord will you make us faithful to it. Even like the Apostle Paul, when you get back to the end of Romans 15, you realize that Romans in many ways is a missionary support letter. That Paul is trying to rally the church so that they can send him who's over 60 years old to Spain to preach where Christ has not been preached. You don't see a guy at 60 saying, you know, I've gave it my all and I'm gonna take it easy for the last 20. He's like, I wanna preach the gospel where it's not been named. How, how can that guy have such perseverance? because the promises of Romans 8 are true, right? And let these truths lead you to mission, church. Let's pray, Father, we thank you tonight for your grace, for all that you have given us in Jesus Christ. You who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. Thank you for rescuing us, from redeeming us from the pit, placing us on a solid rock. We bless you. How could we thank you enough? for all that you have done for us. We pray you would help us tonight deepen our delight in Jesus Christ to allow the the truths of this text to lead us to worship, to lift us from despair, to build us as a community and embolden us for mission. We pray you would write these things on our hearts tonight. For Jesus' sake we pray. Everybody said.